Welcome to the Genomics Life. My goal is to give you some behind the scenes stories of the people, their innovations, and exciting work in the field of genomics. In this episode, I talked to Adam Philippi, Senior Investigator in the Computational and Statistical Genomics Branch at the National Human Genome Research Institute, or NHGRI, at the NIH. Adam has made many contributions to the field of genomics, including Mummer, Canoe, MASH, Krona, and many others. Let's jump in. Hello and welcome. I am here today with Adam Philippi, who I have had the pleasure of knowing for quite a long time, actually, because yeah. we used to work together at Tiger, where we sat in the dungeon, I mean, concourse. and um, It's like 20 years ago. Yeah, that's not cool that's at scary. all. <laughs> But uh, luckily, we had a foosball table down there, so life was pretty good. But uh, before we even get to Tiger, first, could you just introduce yourself, Adam? Yeah, so I'm Adam Philippi, and I lead the genome informatics section at the National Human Genome Research Institute at NIH. Uh, And I've been there for about five years, and we work on bioinformatics methods development uh, and new technologies for sequencing. So methods for sequencing, aligning sequencing reads to genomes, Mm -hmm. assembling genomes, uh, and comparing genomes. Awesome. And that's just kind of where you are right now. So I want to go like way back Mm -hmm. to young Adam. Were you like interested in science? Were you interested in computer science? What were you like when you were a kid? Yeah, no, I was definitely interested in science. My dad was a like a middle school, high school, elementary school science teacher. He was actually running a planetarium around Harrisburg, PA, and uh, he always sparked curiosity in me. We'd go out on hikes, and he'd tell me what every plant was that we saw. We'd go fishing, look at the sky, had telescopes, and so uh, my whole childhood was kind of fed with that science aspect. Science. Um, I didn't ever think I wanted to become a scientist. Uh, I just kind of gravitated towards what I liked and what I was good at, which was computer programming, basically. Mm-hmm. And I went to undergrad uh, in a computer science department, still not thinking I was going to do genomics or Right. Where did you genetics. go to undergrad? Uh, Loyola College, now called Loyola University in Baltimore, Maryland. Um, and the reason I chose that school is we did a number of visits and on visit day at Loyola, the person who was running the visit day was a guy by the name of Art Delcher. Uh, no, I didn't know that. And uh, he was a computer science prof. He was chair of the department at the time. And he was moonlighting at Solera Genomics, writing code to assemble the first human genome. I did not and know that's where Art came in. Just by happenstance, he was leading the visit day. And my whole family fell in love with him and thought this guy was great. And so I committed, went to Loyola. And it turned out to be one of the best decisions I made because Art launched my career, he introduced me to genomics. Yeah. And it was maybe my sophomore year, I was having a, an algorithms class taught by Art, and at the end of the class he said, hey, I recently got a grant to work on this tool called Glimmer, which was one mm-hmm. of the first gene finders. Yeah. Is anybody interested in helping me as you know, a side job? Uh, and I raised my hand, and I remembered my dad telling me about DNA, and I thought it was really cool and fascinating, and signed up to help Art with that, and then he introduced me to Steve Salzberg, who I worked with a tiger and kind of launched my whole career into genomics. That's awesome. I did not know (laughs) that story. I was a very, uh, I don't know, uh, unmotivated child. Like I didn't know what school I wanted to go to. My mom kind of picked out a bunch of schools she thought I should visit and I had no interest in making that decision. But when I met Art, thank goodness my mom picked some good places for me to visit. That's really interesting. That's Mm -hmm. awesome. What a good story. How did Art end up at Tiger, just because he was at Solera? Uh, that was a connection through Hopkins. Uh-huh. And so he had a very kind of twisting path in his career. And I think he even worked for like the IRS or something at right. some point in his prior life. Um, and so he went and did his PhD kind of later in life and in his career. And he did his PhD at Hopkins uh, and was advised by a prof by the name of Simon Kasif. And Simon and Stephen both were at Hopkins at the time and knew each other. And so there was kind of this, this is like in the late 90s, and there was this kernel of people right. who were computer scientists getting interested in this concept of DNA sequencing. And you had Ham Smith there. And... Yeah. And so Art yeah. knew Stephen, and mm-hmm. uh, Stephen, I think, had recruited Art to come work at Tiger. And then, I see. Uh, oh, and Tiger turned into Solera. Right. And for the people listening who don't know Art Dulcher, do you want to just describe what he did quickly? Oh, yeah. I mean, he... He wrote a lot of the fundamental tools in the late 90s. The first microbial gene finder called Glimmer, uh, the first whole genome aligner called Mummer, 
Uh, he wrote the, the highly complex overlapping code in the Solera assembler, which was the first whole genome shotgun assembler. Um, and he's one of these kind of uh, uh, unsung heroes of the yes, early genomics absolutely. era. That he was a completely humble, selfless guy who was just interested yes. in, in doing good work and advising good people. Uh, and he put out a lot of very uh, impactful tools and ideas in the That's late so awesome. 90s, early 2000s. So awesome. Okay, so... And thankfully, he's uh, enjoying his retirement now. That's good. I'm glad he's <laughs> Playing enjoying Playing a lot of ping-pong, I'm sure. <laughs> so now you have... You graduate from Loyola, and do you immediately go to Tiger? Yeah, I was thinking about going to graduate school, and I visited a couple of places. Um, but uh, I had done a summer internship at Tiger in Steven Salzberg's group mm -hmm. and so I knew I had that connection and Steven offered me a job in the bioinformatics group uh, at Tiger yep. um, and I really enjoyed that place yes. as an environment. Me too. And, I miss uh, it. I was happy to go work down there so I signed up right out of undergrad and I started you know like the week after I graduated. Right. Awesome. And met you. Yes. <laughs> and then my memory of you at Tiger was mostly, or at least started with Nukemer. Mm. Is that the right memory? Yeah, that's the first project I had when I was a summer intern. Uh, before I graduated, I was working on genome alignment methods. Mm -hmm. And so Art had run, wrote this package called Mummer, um, but it had this big weakness that it could only uh, align genomes that were collinear. Yes. So I forget what it was. It was like strep or something at the time they were yeah. sequencing. And it was okay for this because there was no big genome rearrangements. Yeah. But if you got into any genomes like E. coli's or Yersinia pestis or something that has a lot of rearrangements, it just couldn't handle it. Yes. And so um, I came in to write code that would uh, connect these exact match anchors into longer alignments uh, and then also extend that to allow uh, the handling of rearrangements. And that was what was Nukemer. Yes. And so that was the first tool that I wrote when I joined Tiger. And it was actually funded by the uh, anthrax investigation. Right. By the FBI. Right. They had all these anthrax genomes they wanted to compare. Yeah, I helped with that project. Yeah. I had a, like secret access to the secret <laughs> database. Yeah. I did not have access to the database. People would just hand me <laughs> genomes genome. labeled A, B, C, and D and say, align these and tell me what's different. Yes. Uh, which was kind of a fun experience at the time. Um, but a lot of those genomes weren't finished. So right. Tiger was trying to finish genomes. Fin I mean, the, the rule at Tiger was you finish you it. You finish every last base. You finish like every last gap. Complete. But we didn't have time or money to do that for the, um, the Amerithrax project. Right. And so a lot of these genomes were quote-unquote draft genomes. But there was like a new concept yes, at the time. Yes, it absolutely was a new concept. Where you would just have a bag of contigs. And so the aligners didn't know how to handle that. They expected whole genomes at the time. Yes. And so... Nukemer's key innovation was to handle rearrangements and draft contigs in an intelligent way and still right. produce results. You know what's crazy about Nukemer is I still use it like, I know. regularly. <laughs> I really wish to just retire that tool. And, no, I still use it. I love it. I love my quartz file. <laughs> no, it's very useful. Dot plots still. Like, it's I just... think one of the reasons that it's held on for so long and that it's been useful is because I... In, in parallel to writing it, I was asked to do a lot of analysis, like yeah. compare these anthrax genomes and tell me what's different. And yes. so I was writing things that I needed to do the work that needed to get done. And it right. turns out that that kind of task of comparing microbial genomes and tracing transmission patterns and calling SNPs is very relevant still today. So it absolutely is. Had some staying power. Yeah, totally. That's awesome. Okay, so Nukemer and then. Was there anything else that's higher or then what, like what made you decide to go ahead and go to grad school at that, at some point? Well, in addition to Nukemer, I was working with Mihai Pop, um, who was my direct supervisor the whole time that I was there and who's now a prof at University of Maryland and director of their Institute for Advanced Computing Studies. Yes. I'm still a good friend. Mm -hmm. um, and Mihai and I worked on some genome assembly work as well as alignment work. Um, but that wasn't the impetus for me to start grad school. It was that uh, Tiger kind of dissolved yes. uh, and became the J. Craig Venter Institute. And a lot of the old time Tiger uh, investigators and the president, Claire Frazier, left and went to other places around Maryland, mostly. Mm -hmm. And my uh, advisor, who was Mihai's boss, was Steve Salzberg. He went to University of Maryland to start the Center for Bioinformatics and Computational Biology. And gave the opportunity to some people in his group to start their PhDs or come with him. And so 
Mike Schatz and myself went along with Stephen yeah. and started our PhDs in computer science at University of Maryland around 2005. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And so that was like a few years. And what was it like going back to school after being out in the field? <laughs> it was really weird because in 2005, I had my first kid. Ella, oh, yes. <laughs> who's now, what, 14 or something like that. Yes. And it was strange because I had to, A, go back to school after making good money for four years. Yep. And not having to worry about taking tests. And now I had this like infant who would keep me up all night. <laughs> And I had a, you know, a final exam the next day. Yeah. And so it was really kind of a surreal experience. And I, you know, some of my, my friends, Mike included, would like laugh at me like, ha ha ha, you know, look at you dummy, you've got a baby in grad school. (laughs) Yeah, that's kind of a perfect storm. So now I laugh at them. (laughs) My kid's 14 and she's uh, super easy to take care of. Very independent. all these babies. (laughs) Um, But it was really a, a fun experience, like meeting the, the grad students, I had the opportunity to meet Mike and Cole Trapnell and Ben Langmead and Dave Kelly and yeah, James that was White. Kind of and we really were all in the same grad office. And That's crazy. The type of ideas that were bounced around, uh, it was really inspiring to be in that environment. Absolutely. Some really folks. good things came out of that group. Yeah, absolutely. And everyone's gone on to do amazing things, too, from that yep. group. Yep, yep. That's great. Um, and so, what, were, what was your main project in grad school? Uh, Stephen had funding from, I think it was the Department of Homeland Security, uh, kind of still along these anthrax lines. So, yeah. you know, this, this incident in 2001 spurred the government to start investing in, in anthrax and pathogens and pathogen detection. Everybody was worried about bioterrorism. Yep. Um, luckily, it turned out to never really come to pass. There wasn't another incident at that scale, but there was a lot of funding for it. And so Stephen had funding to develop pipelines that could identify the signatures of pathogenic bacteria so you could build like PCR assays or microarrays to detect them. And so most all of my thesis work was developing uh, tools that could help design those assays to detect pathogens. Yes. Um, What was it called? The one? Insignia Insignia. was the main one. That's right. And so you could give it all of the genomes at the time that were in the NCBI databases (laughs) and then you could say like I want a probe that is specific to anthrax and not found in anything else that we know about. And it could do that computation and return to you all of the cameras that were only found in insignia and not found in anything else. And those ideas kind of have, I think, had some influence on tools like Kraken that came afterwards that use this idea of of clade-specific marker sequences. Yeah, yeah. Um, And for where I work at Cosmos ID, a lot of the technology is similar based on camer. Yeah, and so... uh, there was some early interactions with what was Iger Knight. Uh, oh yeah, was there yeah. Early Iger on. Knight and, and, um, and Rita and Caldwell Rita. was a co-PI on the grant with Stephen that was uh, meant to design these signatures. So yeah, they were closely awesome. working with those folks at the time. Awesome. I guess that was while uh, Rita was at uh, Canon Life Sciences. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so then after that, you decided to go and you went straight after grad school to work at in Frederick at the yeah the, the high security the, the, what's it called the National Biodefense Analysis and Countermeasures Center yes um, and that was kind of a consequence of the work I had done in my grad school I was kind of in this biodefense realm and yeah. so I had the opportunity to start a bioinformatics group at this new lab uh, that Homeland Security had built in Frederick mm-hmm. Maryland on the Fort Detrick campus and it was meant to be a bioforensics facility. So if the FBI ever had, you know, a letter full of powder come to them again, rather than kind of subcontracting it out to these nonprofit research institutes, they could have their own fit for purpose laboratory with appropriate right. biosafety and all of this. Um, and so I joined there in 2010 and started a bioinformatics group mm-hmm. um, and hired a lot of people that still work in my group today, like Brian Ondov and, and Sergey Korin. Right. And so we worked there uh, for about five years doing bioforensics and methods development for whole genome sequencing and assembly, like very high quality, like every last SNP perfectly correct. And so we were using the PacBio instruments that just come on the market at the time. And that's when we got really interested into this long read sequencing and perfect genome assembly idea. Um, And so we we booted that group up, but then in 2015, we wanted to have more kind of flexibility to pursue our own research projects. And so that's when we moved to NHGRI. Right. And... Were, were you able to 
release any tools during your time there or was it all kind of <laughs> yeah, private? You're asking good questions because this brings up fun stories. That, <laughs> like I'm a huge open source, open science advocate. Yes. And I've been trained that way by Stephen. All of the Mummer, yes. Glimmer stuff early on was released open source. I remember Stephen fighting with the lawyers. I have it like imprinted in my brain of him like saying like, screw the lawyers. We're going to just put it up on the website tomorrow, you know. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and so I kind of had that attitude mm -hmm. when I started. And so this is a lab that's like run by Homeland Security and like FBI. And I want to release all of our code open source. Right. Um, that was a foreign concept to them initially. Yeah. Um, but our first trial was this tool called Krona, which is this metagenome <laughs> visualization uses. tool, which yes. now has like 800 citations or something. Yeah. Um, and we wanted to release that freely and open source. And there wasn't any way to do it within the confines of, of right. the system. Uh -huh. And so I made the argument that we're a bioforensics institute. Mm -hmm. If we ever do a case investigation and it goes to court, we're going to use these tools to do the analysis and then the court and the jury is going to want to know, you know, are these valid analyses? And yeah. There's this thing called the Daubert standard, which determines like admissible evidence into okay. proceedings. Yes. And one of the categories for being admissible is that like it's peer reviewed and accepted by the scientific community. Mm -hmm. And I argued like these tools can only be accepted by the scientific community and the journals really only accept the tools now if the source is released, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And so I proposed that we licensed it. I think I proposed the BSD license just because it was like the shortest thing that I think they would understand. <laughs> and we worked with the lawyers at Homeland Security. And then like I got a letter from like the Department of the Navy saying like, you are hereby authorized to release Krona wow. as BSD license, like blah, blah, blah. I was so proud. Wow. <laughs> I had like I did fought not the system. know what you had to go through. And to made do a that. good win. And then once we got that out the door, that opened the way. So everything we wrote after that followed the same example. And we just licensed it with this BSD license. Okay. Um, so the first one was the worst. That, it was because we were contractors actually for Battelle. Mm -hmm. And so you had to still kind of like license it because Battelle had some claim to those. Yes, to the property. To those IP. Uh, IP. Yeah. Now that we're at NHGRI, we're all federal employees. So everything that we write is public domain. Right. So but now all were... of our stuff gets licensed public domain. Right. And you could publish papers while you were there? Also, that was or... the same argument. Uh -huh. If we want the community to accept our forensic analyses, our methods need to be reviewed in the peer-reviewed literature. Absolutely. And so, yeah, we published everything that we developed on the methods development side. That's really awesome. Very cool. Um, and even on the case side, you know, the Amerithrax investigation was 2001. Yeah. And it wasn't until like 2011 or 12 that mm -hmm. uh, Dave Rasco, Jacques Ravel, Claire Frazier, you know, myself, Steve Salzberg, Paul Keim, all of the people that were involved with that project actually put out a manuscript in PNAS describing the analysis That's but it took 10 years later over a decade i'm surprised right. people still have their notes right i remember mihai asking me like do you have like x y and z it was like oh my gosh it was like eight years ago yeah um, but we managed to find it all right and and it was nice and gratifying to put out a manuscript describing the work that went into that i'm it was sure because really cool it was project. a lot of work a lot and of it people. was really the first genomic based investigation of an outbreak yes where you're trying to like build a tree and find yes. you know the common ancestor and yeah. Uh, it was it was cool. It's fascinating. Okay, so now then you moved to NIH and what have you been working on there? A lot of things if I'm if I like kind of just think back the last few years, but do you Yeah, want to most most some? of it has kind of been around long read sequencing and genome assembly. Mm -hmm. um, and so when we moved from NBAC to NHGRI, we kind of shifted from doing microbial genomics and assembly to uh, large genome, human genome mm -hmm. sequencing and assembly. Um, and we were doing PacBio, which we still are, but then Nanopore came on the scene. Yes. So we started developing our tools for Nanopore, both for read alignment mm -hmm. and uh, genome assembly. Mm -hmm. um, and when I applied to NHGRI, you know, my specific aim, like number three, was we're going to finish the human genome, yeah. which is all of the gaps that still remain, yeah. of mostly which there's the a few hundred, mostly the centromeres and a bunch of the large segmental duplications. Mm -hmm. We're going to finish all of these, find out what sequence is in these unknown regions mm -hmm. using the long read technologies. And I thought I was kind of, you know, it sounded like a good specific aim at the time. Right. I wasn't confident like in how many years we would actually be able to do it. Mm -hmm. um, but luckily our recent research in the past year or two has shown that we can do this now for at least the human X chromosome. Yeah, one chromosome and down. And so we're still working on doing the additional chromosomes. But. 
where are some you? stuff going on in metagenomics so, and, and in other fields. But. So that we is in the telomere to telomere project, right? Yeah. So where are you right now? Like, are you working? What are you working on at the moment? I saw a preprint out um, about the centromere repeats and what's the latest. Yeah, so we have the preprint out describing the chromosome X uh, assembly. Mm -hmm. And that kind of came out of a big consortium um, that Nick Lohman and Matt Luce were leading uh, three or four years ago mm -hmm. that was describing the first assembly of a human genome with these nanopore ultra-long reads. Right. We've got reads that are like 500 kilobases to a megabase pair long. Um, and uh, there was a scientist, uh, a postdoc at the time, Karen Miga, who was involved with that, mm -hmm. um, who's just the world's leading expert on centromere sequence repeats. That's awesome. And after we kind of had this initial proof of concept that we could sequence and assemble human genomes with ultra long reads, we still hadn't solved the centromere problem. Mm -hmm. But Karen reached out to me and said, like, I have this vision that we want to like finish the human genome. I was like, I have that vision too. <laughs> like, do you want to work together? Absolutely. Um, and so the two of us started this telomere to telomere consortium with the goal of trying to finish the centromeres and the remaining gaps in the human genome. And so that's where the Chromosome X project uh, was mm -hmm. launched, which we just uh, finished and put the preprint out uh, back in the fall. Okay. And so now we're looking at the... So, uh, Karen Mega and I started this telomere to telomere project, and uh, the aim was pretty straightforward. We were going to pick uh, a cell line that had essentially no uh, heterozygous variants within it, so we only have to worry about one genome to complete. And we just sequenced it to death with nanopore and uh, PacBio. And so we spent basically six months, uh, the folks at my NIH Intramural Sequencing Center, NISC, uh, down in Twinbrook, uh, sequenced for like six months straight using the ultra-long protocols mm -hmm. that came out of Nick Lohman's lab and Josh Quick. And we generated as much data as we could of these super, super long reads. Mm -hmm. And the idea is simple. It's just if you collect enough of these very long reads, just by chance, you'll get long reads in the places that you care about, like yes. the centromere. And so in the end, we have like 20x coverage of reads that are longer than 100 KB or something like nice. that. And so, you, you know, if the centromere is like three megabase pairs, you can literally tile it in like 10 reads. That's or crazy. Like that. That's awesome. And so Karen, given her immense uh, past experience with the centromeric and satellite repeats, mm -hmm. um, kind of knew what characteristic variants were within that chromosome X centromere array wow. for the cell line. And she literally kind of manually assembled <laughs> a yeah. tiling path of reads mm -hmm. across the centromere that resolved the structure. Mm -hmm. But these were still raw nanopore reads. So it's, you know, at the time it was maybe 15% error rate in the mm -hmm. reads. And so we needed to build a consensus sequence that would polish away that error mm -hmm. by looking at all 50 reads that cover that spot. Yeah. Uh, and this turned out to be actually one of the hardest parts of the project was that there wasn't a good way to map the reads into that big repeat because it's a three megabase per sequence. So you have like a smaller 10 KB pack bio read and you want to figure out where in the array it should be aligned. Mm -hmm. Well, it can align equally well in like a hundred different places. Of course. And so um, Adan Ri in my group and, and Serge Corin uh, had the idea to look for these characteristic unique camers that occur only one copy in the genome. Mm -hmm. And you can find these by looking at uh, unassembled Illumina data. How, you look for camers that so occur. So they're pretty small then. The yeah, 21 base pairs is long enough to 21 be 21 bases that are unique in the entire genome? Yeah, because they have a single variant within them mm -hmm. that doesn't occur anywhere else, and so it's wow. enough to be unique in the whole genome. And so you look at unassembled Illumina data, and say so you sequence the genome to 60x coverage Illumina, you look for camers that occur 60 times, roughly, in the unassembled <laughs> Illumina data set, and that's how you know it's a single copy, because if it was two copies, it would occur 120 yeah. times. And then we line those camers up and we say, okay, we know these are single copy. We look in the nanopore reads from the centromere and say, do any of these have any of these single copy camers? And they do. Mm -hmm. And you kind of just note where they are on the read. And how then many... you use those as anchors, so to speak, to figure out the right place to put that read in the centromere. How many different single copy camers did you find? So uh, let's talk about like their spacing. Yeah. And so in the normal part of the genome, everything is unique. And yeah. so like pick a camera out of a genome that's 21 bases. Right. There's so many possible 21 mers right. that it's likely to be unique in a right. single copy. So most of the genome is single copy camers. Um, the biggest surprise of this project was the frequency at which we were finding them in the big repeat arrays like the centromere. And so in the chromosome X centromere, 
Uh, I forget off the top of my head, but I think on average, they're spaced a few thousand base pairs apart. In the centromere, in the centromere. Thousand bases apart. And so every few thousand bases, you'll find one of these unique camers. One unique and camer. And when your reads are 100 kb long, you'll have a couple of them mm -hmm. per read. Okay, so a couple per read that differ by one base. That have some unique sequence that makes okay. that camer unique. It could also okay. be an insertion. Okay. Um, so for instance, there's like a line insertion in one part of the centromere. So mm -hmm. a bunch of the camers in there will be unique just because they're not the standard right. satellite sequence. There's some weird line sequence. That's also a repeat, but there's enough variation between the line repeats that you can also find unique camers within them as well. And the biggest stretch that we found in the centromere that didn't have any unique camers was 50 kb. Mm -hmm. So that's fan. So as long as you've got reads that are bigger than 50 kb, you can start to anchor mm -hmm. more than one marker per read, and that lets you then uniquely tile across awesome. the centromere. And then even with the pack bio reads, you can then come in and find the unique camers in those, even though they're shorter and localize them to the right spot in the array and then call consensus sequence to get a good high quality reconstruction at the base level wow. for the whole centromere. So we needed to add not just nanopore, but the pack bio data as well to get the consensus accuracy up to yeah. uh, a 99.99% .99 accurate result. That's awesome. All right. So and that turned out to be really a pain. <laughs> yeah, and now you have to do this over and over. And when we first released the chromosome at AGBT, where we were both at last year, mm -hmm. we announced, okay, chromosome X, we have our draft reconstruction. We put it up on GitHub mm -hmm. before the preprint was out or anything. We just said, here's the sequence. And it was like two or three days later, I got an email from Evan Eichler and uh, Mitchell Volger, who's a PhD student in his lab, saying, we looked at your X assembly and it's wrong in like three different places. Uh. We're like, we're really sure it's not because yeah. we had like optical map evidence and right. we had, we had uh, DDPCR mm -hmm. measurements of the copy number of the arrays. Um, and so we thought the structure was, was correct, but it turns out that they uncovered this really important issue that the polishing was messing up. The reads were being aligned to the wrong part of the repeat. And so when we tried to do the polishing and the consensus, it was like corrupting the individual bases, even though the structure oh. was correct. And their validation technique was picking that signal up. Oh, gosh. And that was a really uh, important observation because then it, it caused us to go develop methods that can do this polishing correctly. And some of those concepts are coming out now. This preprint you mentioned mm -hmm. from Chirag Jain this week is on a tool called WinnowMap mm -hmm. that uh, weights the camers that it's using for the anchoring of the reads based on how repetitive or how erroneous they are. And that can improve the mapping, right. which then gets rid of this polishing corruption issue within the repeats right and this is this is happening in everyone's assembly by the way I'm whether sure. they know it or not i am sure people that run polishing tools yeah. currently you know it's common to make a nanopore assembly and then polish with alumina yeah. yeah the repeats are getting worse when you do that polishing they just don't notice because there's no good way to validate the repeats i totally believe that but that kind of polishing is corrupting uh, all assemblies and repeats currently and we're working on ways to solve that problem that's really that was going to be my question is would this be applied to other things? And yeah. it sounds like yes. Yeah. And then my other question, this is a very naive question. How different are the centromeres from each other from one chromosome to another? It depends on the species. So uh, for human. In human, uh, you know, the X centromere, for instance, is very characteristic of the X. Okay, has, so you can be like, oh yeah, this is definitely You see the satellite X. repeat, which is like 2KB, uh -huh. and like this is an X satellite from the X centromere. Uh-huh, and um, are the other chromosomes... Some of the other chromosomes are also like that, but mm -hmm. some of them share satellites. Because then I was going to wonder how you know that you're getting the right centromere. Yeah, no, it's that's an issue and why some of these other chromosomes will be very hard, um, because there is sharing of satellite repeats between chromosomes. Yeah. Um, and we're going to have to tackle that in the same way with kind of these unique camers. So there'll be camers that are unique to chromosome one versus mm -hmm. chromosome three or what have you. Uh, and that'll help us localize to what chromosome we're looking at. Mm -hmm. um, we've also done some uh, chromosome sorting with our collaborators at Stowers mm -hmm. in, um, uh, I guess, they're Kansas City. Super Bowl champs. <laughs> <laughs> Kansas City, Missouri. <laughs> yeah. And uh, they have a lot of experience in very sensitive sorting, flow sorting. Mm -hmm. And they were able to sort out individual human chromosomes for us, okay. which and then we sequence sequenced on Illumina. Yeah. And now we have libraries of camers that we know are specific to chromosome That's one exactly for what our you cell need line. Then. Yeah. And we can use those then to bin out the yes. nanopore or the PacBioreads and say, okay, these are 
chromosome one satellite reads versus the other okay. ones. Awesome. Based on those, again, those unique camera markers. That totally makes sense. Okay, one thing I like to talk about with you would be MASH, because I do more microbial stuff yeah. at the moment. And can you just tell us a little bit about that project? Yeah, so MASH is, is this really cool tool that we developed a number of years ago that computes very quick but accurate genomic distances mm -hmm. between anything, but it's been getting most use in the microbial genomic space. Um, and so uh, the way to measure the, the average relatedness of microbial genomes in the past has been to use this metric called ANI, average mm -hmm. nucleotide identity. Yep. And early on, you know, even Nucumer was used to generate those. So you would right. have to run Nucumer on the genomes, compute the alignment, look at all of the alignments, uh, and then take the average identity of all those alignments as kind of the average relatedness of those genomes at the core genome level. Yes. So only things that align between the two genomes are considered. Uh, people use BLAST now. Uh, there's some BLAST-based pipelines that can do this as well. Um, but it's a bit of a slow process. If you want to do it for a million microbial genomes, you have to pairwise align all a million of those, and that's a really nasty n-squared operation. Because, um, you, you know, picture the matrix of distances, and you yeah. have to know the distance for all pairs Every of those. Every single one to each other. Yeah. And so, you know, it has this quadratic complexity. Uh, but we were made aware by uh, our friend and collaborator, Constantine Berlin, who was also a University of Maryland CS student and uh, a good friend of Serge Korn in my lab. And Constantine brought this idea of min-hashing to us originally for speeding up the genome assembly problem. And so our assembler canoe uh, has uh, an overlapper within it called MHAP that Constantine developed that is built on this concept of min-hash. Mm -hmm. And min-hash is a locality-sensitive hashing, dimensionality reduction uh, Obviously. <laughs> method. It was originally developed in the early 2000s by this guy, Andre Broder, who worked at AltaVista at the time, and now I believe works at Google. And it was designed to rapidly compare web pages to figure out which ones were duplicates. Mm -hmm. And so when you get your web search, you don't want to have like 10 pages that are all just copies of one another. Mm -hmm. And so it's a way to find rapidly duplicates, things that are highly similar. And Constantine had the observation that, gee, this would work great for assembly because we're looking for reads that are very similar because they're coming from the same part of the genome. And we can use that to find alignments. And it works great mm -hmm. for genome assembly. Um, and so Constantine brought that idea to us and educated all of us on how it works and that this is such a really cool concept, this min-hashing idea. And we were looking at different ways to apply that in bioinformatics because we always have this big data problem. Mm -hmm. And I thought, gee, well, we've got all these microbial genomes and we want to know the ones that are similar to one another for outbreak detection, for instance. And I thought, well, this could be applied to this problem. And so uh, Brian Andav in my lab, who was software engineer at the time, uh, developed it and implemented it. Uh, we figured out how then to kind of take the distances that min-hashing gives you, which is called a Jacquard distance, and mm -hmm. convert that to this ANI metric, more or less. Right. Um, so it was basically giving men a distance that biologists were used yes. to seeing, which I think is very important. It's super important. And often overlooked, like nobody wants a Jacquard metric. Or no. Some weird, you know. They're used to A and I, they need A. Some weird distance that you invented mathematically. They want to know the, the average identity. Yes. And so we made this very usable, fast, handy tool uh, that has really had a lot of impact on the field over the past few years. Yes. On how to rapidly cluster and, and compare microbial genomes or even larger human genomes. Yeah. And so then uh, Chirag Jain, uh, currently a postdoc in my lab, kind of ran with this idea further and improved it with a tool called FastANI, which he just released uh -huh. last year, um, that takes MASH one step further and, and restricts it to only looking at the core genome, which was something that MASH originally didn't do. Yep. And that, again, makes it kind of more usable for people that care about this ANI metric. Yes. Um, and, you know, it's just as fast, and it gives you a more accurate ANI estimate. And... Um, Chirag used that to kind of survey all of the distances of all of the microbial genomes that are in GenBank mm -hmm. and show that it does look like species tend to cluster into these kind of discrete yes. groups. When the ANI is more than, say, 96%, mm -hmm. you see things within a species, and then there's this gulf where there's not really anything that's in this no-man's land of 90% to 95% ANI. Yeah. And everything's either highly related or, or very unrelated. Yes, exactly. And so this seems to give evidence that the bacterial species concept is actually a thing. 
Yeah. Which has been a hotly debated question. Debated. Actually, Rita Caldwell asked me that question in my PhD defense. <laughs> Did she? When I was talking about these insignia signatures. That she was like, do you awesome. think microbial species are real? And I was like, Rita. What did you like, say? I was like, I have no idea. It's such a hard <laughs> question. Like, how am I ever going to figure that out? And this was 2010. So I, think I feel kind of happy now that you can say yes. I can go back to Rita now 10 years later and say, hey, that question you asked me 10 years ago, I think I have an answer for you. Yeah, now. that's awesome. You should tell her. <laughs> uh, so... Core genome also reminds me of harvest tools, which I also like to use. Yeah, yeah. Harvest was a cool project from Todd Triangan, yeah. uh, who's now an assistant professor at Rice University yes. in Texas. Um, and Todd has a, a great training history. He worked for Steve Salisbury. He worked for Eduardo Rocha uh, at the Pasteur Institute. Uh -huh. um, and so he's got a long pedigree working on genome alignment methods. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so we were looking for projects. And I said, Todd, you had this cool you know, suffix graph data structure you had implemented back in your PhD days. Like, what, why don't we dust that off and make a fast multiple genome aligner, mm -hmm. which was something that we didn't have at the time. So we were doing these forensic investigations where somebody would give us 100 microbial genomes and mm -hmm. it was taking forever yeah. to align them and just yeah. build a core SNP tree. Yeah. Um, so here, rather than like estimated distances, we want to know every SNP in mm -hmm. the genome so we can build a phylogeny. And uh, so... Todd implemented a method that could find exact match anchors that are shared between all genomes mm -hmm. in your data set. So basically maximal yep. exact matches, um, but that are shared between the set of 100 genomes. Uh, and then we cluster those exact matches, and then we actually just call muscle mm -hmm. in between the gaps yeah. of those exact matches to build the multiple alignments. Uh, and then have some nice tools that do visualization and, and yeah, data structures really nice. that compress all that down, mm -hmm. uh, and that's a tool called Harvest Tools, where the aligner is parsnip and the viewer is ginger. Yes. And uh, the, the viewer was written by Brian Ondav again, mm -hmm. uh, and Todd Drangan wrote all of the algorithm code for the aligner. Yep. Really like that tool. It works really well. Yeah, that was one of the first ones that could take, you know, a thousand or more E. coli's yes. and actually give you a, a functional alignment. As long as your genomes are closely related, it works well. If yep. you start to get some that are like... And that's because it relies on these exact on matches. matches. So if yeah. you don't have an exact match that's shared by then all of your genomes, it's not exactly. finding any anchors. And yeah. so uh, it really needs these highly related, high quality yeah. genomes. Yeah, no, it's really awesome. You've done so many things. Um, okay, my other things that I have are pan-genome work. Yeah, what's happening with the pan-genome? That's a big buzzword these days. Uh, it really is. I, I'm glad you said pan genome instead of graph genomes. I always shiver when people talk about graph genomes. Yeah. It's my pet peeve these days <laughs> because I think it turns people off that when you talk to biologists or clinicians and you start talking about data structures, they yes. don't want to hear it and right. they just tune you out. Mm -hmm. And I think pan genome is good. It talks about the concept rather than the data structure. Mm -hmm. And the concept for human is that we want to have a large collection yes. of a lot of diverse human genomes. And nobody disagrees with that. That's how could you disagree? <laughs> How could you disagree with that we want to have a lot of diversity in our genome databases? How you represent that, whether you use a graph or whatever compressive technique you want, leave that to the informaticians. Right. The clinicians don't want to hear about it. Right. And so the pan genome is an effort now that we can uh, sequence and assemble these high-quality human genomes using PacBio and Nanopore and yeah. all of these new techniques. Let's go collect a bunch of, of great high-quality de novo human genomes. Mm -hmm. And so NHGRI, not me, but the extramural funding side right. of the institute, uh, put out a call for proposals a year or two ago saying we want to fund people to sequence and assemble and, and maintain a pan-genome database. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the groups that got funded to do that are going to go off and sequence a few hundred uh, humans, mm -hmm. 300, I think, was something in the proposal. Uh, and they're going to do all of that with Nanopore and PacBio and build de novo assemblies. And these will be from individuals of all population backgrounds from all around the world. And we'll try to collect as much uh, human genomic diversity that we can. Yeah. And then we'll use that to improve uh, genotyping. So the current human reference genome, GRCH38, is a bunch of people. Actually, yeah. it's a mosaic. Yeah. Um, most of the sequence comes from an admixed African-American from upstate yes, New York. New York, yep. And so if you go into the doctor and you want to get your genome genotyped and you're not from an admixed right. American background, say you, you know, are coming from an Asian heritage, it could be quite different. matching your genome to that, mm -hmm. there'll be some SNPs that aren't lining up and it can cause artifacts in the process. And right. so the field is moving towards kind of personalized genome references where when you come in, you, your genome can be aligned to 
a reference that's more similar to what your genome looks like yes, to reduce the error in the process. But, you know, there's a lot of people that are highly admixed. And so mm -hmm. I think it's not enough to just have population-specific references. You know, for instance, if you're African-American and you're admixed European and African descent, do you want to align to a European or an African genome? Like, no, you probably want to align to a collection of all of the alleles right. in the universe. Mm -hmm. And for any part of your genome, it gets aligned to the region that it matches most in the databases. Yeah. And that'll improve our sensitivity and accuracy and analyses. Um, and better understanding these genomic backgrounds, so to speak. Uh, as, as is known, there's a lot of difference in disease phenotype based on your genetic background. You mm -hmm. know, having a higher uh, risk of hypertension, for instance, if yep. you have an African background in your genome and so forth. So mm -hmm. uh, this is a hot topic, and I think there'll be a lot of great research to come out of this once we have hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands of high-quality human genome assemblies. Yeah, for sure. And then the tools will have to follow and the best methods will be figured out in terms of assembly graphs versus other <laughs> options. Yeah, there's <laughs> limitless uh, opportunities. Often people will ask me, now that you have long reads, like, isn't assembly solved? What are you going to do next? Right. I was right. like, well, then we analyze the genomes. Yeah, I mean... The methods that you need to build the alignments between all of these and compare them yeah. are very related algorithmically to the methods that we use to assemble them. It's still alignment and comparison still in the alignment. end. And so yep. We'll use these graph techniques and alignment techniques to compare these genomes in the same way we currently use them now to assemble them. Great. Great. I mean, that kind of brings up the question of we're getting to the point where for just a few thousand dollars you can have a pretty good genome from almost any Oh, yeah. Species. Now, now that the nanopore promethion is released, yeah. you know, that can generate over 100 gigabases of sequence for $1,500, $2,000, something like that. Right. And that's enough to get a 30x human genome, and so which is enough to, to, I think, with the right algorithms to get a pretty accurate genotype for a human. And um, then if you, if you are talking personalized medicine and then let's say we have all the diversity included in the references and so I come in and I want my genome sequenced and genotyped, what do I do with that data? <laughs> <laughs> You're asking all the hard questions. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's a bit of an open question. We're still in this like single reference mode mm -hmm. in the community that like all of the clinical assays kind of tend yeah. to type against the human reference because mm -hmm. it gives you this common coordinate space and all the genes are annotated on there. Uh, and as we get more and more genomes, we'll, we'll tend to drift away from that single reference probably. And what that is going to look like is hotly debated. And I don't think anybody really knows, but... I actually like to look at the microbial genomics community who have already mm -hmm. dealt with this problem yes. for 20 years. And, you know, our old friend, Hervé Tetelin, yes. you know, kind of invented this pan-genome term yep. in the early 2000s. What was his species of interest? I forget what this was even in. Oh, geez. Strep? I don't even remember. Yeah, I feel like he did several things. I don't remember. And uh, they've had this problem for 15 years that there's hundreds of microbial species uh, strains per species mm -hmm. and how do they organize and characterize that well a they just complete the whole genome mm -hmm. and they store that as a linear object in the database yep. which i think we need to do for humans as mm -hmm. well i like you know the genome is linear yes we should store the linear <laughs> object for every human or at least make it retrievable mm -hmm. there's compression methods that can mm -hmm. that can do this for you um and then they also tend to give the alleles kind of their own sequence types. And so if you think about uh, a pathogen, they'll talk about the sequence type yes, of this. At type. this particular locus, yes. it's got this exact allele, like down to the base level. Yes. And, and maybe something like this would work for human too, for like any gene. Oh, that's a, yeah, you know, that's true. There's only a certain number. There's a finite number of types Possibly. for every allele yeah. mm -hmm. um, that are circulating in the population if you kind of exclude the de novo mutations. Mm -hmm. And maybe we could have a sequence type for each of these. Yeah. And you could refer to that. Uh, or there could be gene-specific references or allele-specific references. Yes. Um, but how we, we manage and organize all of that in a way that allows clinicians and, and patients and doctors to query and understand it is a real challenge. It sounds almost impossible. And at the end of the day, people want to know, like, what does this mean for me? Mm -hmm. And so if we have annotations of these databases that have, you know, risk-causing alleles mm -hmm. annotated... They don't want to know you've got a SNP in position, you know, 5,322,000. They right. want to know, like, you've got a risk allele for this disease. What does it mean? And yes. I think ultimately we'll abstract away all of this algorithmic and 
and coordinate detail and it'll just come down to kind of risk prediction and, yes. and treatment prediction. Right. Given you have this risk and you have this genotype, what's the best treatment? Right. Um, and maybe the machine learning methods will solve all of this for us. Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> we can AI. just put it into the, the ML and it'll spit out the, the treatment recommendation. Then you get like the transcriptome and then you just go crazy. Yep. There's no lack of, of very rich, interesting data sets to play with in this exactly. field for many, many years to come. Exactly. Okay. So vertebrate genome project, just quickly, what are you doing with that? The, the VGP vertebrate genomes project is kind of similar to this human pan genome project in that we have cheap sequencing now and we can get high quality genomes. So let's go sequence all of the interesting things that we can find. Mm -hmm. so Are you v doing like crazy things or is it more no, just v like, go ahead. Yeah, define crazy. There are some crazy. Well, crazy like species. there's a lot of insects out there, for example, yeah. that we don't know anything about. Yeah. Are you going into like that world or is... So the VGP is oh, wait, focused this is particularly <laughs> on the vertebrates, but yes. there's a lot of other projects that have been sprouting up. There's been the I5K in the past, which was insects. Okay, yeah. Um, there's now the Darwin Tree of Life project in the UK, which is trying to do every, I think, eukaryotic genome. Yeah. So yeah. insects and right. paramecium, everything included. So um, even with invertebrates, there's lots of... Oh, there's like, a lot of really cool stories ones. within the vertebrates, especially when you talk about the endangered species. Mm -hmm. um, there's this little kind of mini dolphin in the Gulf of California called the Vaquita mm -hmm. um, that there's only like... 10 or 20 individuals left in the whole world. Jeez. And it's like this very little isolated population that's now its own species that's at the very northern tip of the Gulf of California. And they kind of got trapped there yeah. years ago when the sea levels uh, rose. Mm -hmm. And there's only 10 or 20 individuals left. I forget exactly how many. And we have you know a blood sample from one of those individuals and we sequenced it with PacBio and built an assembly. And so now up on our our website, uh, vgp.github.io, you can go and download the genome of one of these few remaining Vaquita that's cool. individuals. Uh, and then there's the Kakapau parrot uh, mm -hmm. in New Zealand. It's this ground parrot that, again, there's only tens of individuals left in the world. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's kind of gratifying to, to build assemblies for those species that might not be around much longer. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, then there's also oddballs like the the platypus, right. which isn't as endangered, but, you know, it's just completely it's weird. Bizarre. It's got like 10 sex chromosomes or something right. like this and, and really bizarre, bizarre in, its, in its phenotype. Mm -hmm. And so it's always fun, you know, we get the data and we assemble the genomes to learn the story about these different species that we're dealing with. Yeah. Um, it's been a gratifying part of that project. That's awesome. Are there any other projects you want to talk about at all? Oh, I think we've talked long enough. <laughs> <And> then, <laughs> you asked just... a lot of uh, questions that, that triggered my storytelling mode. No, I love it. It brings That's up a lot of really to... good memories. That's awesome. And I've been super privileged and lucky to be in this field with such great colleagues like yourself over the years. That's been Me such a wonderful too. community to work with. I feel the uh, same. And to be able to contribute back to science and society. It's, it's, uh, I couldn't ask for a better job. It's the best job in the world. That's so awesome. <laughs> I love hearing that. Uh, okay, so just to wrap up, two things. Anything you're interested in working on that's like coming up that we don't know about yet? Yes. My, my, my vision project, so to speak, that I really wanted to get off the ground but mm -hmm. uh, have failed so far, but I'm hoping to make progress this year, uh, is a project that I pitched at the Lake Arrowhead Microbial Genomics meeting. Mm -hmm. I don't even remember how long ago that was, maybe five years ago. Or more and I was calling it Pokemon Go for microbes at the time because <laughs> it was during the Pokemon Go craze yeah. and everybody I remember at that meeting people were like literally playing Pokemon Go like during the scientific meeting <laughs> <laughs> and that inspired me in some way because Pokemon Go was really cool and that you got like a smartphone and you're exploring the world mm -hmm. and you're finding new species and I thought gee like let's combine microbial genomics and Pokemon hunting and yes. enable people to go out in the environment and discover new species. I love that. And so the nanopore instrument was coming online at the time. Yeah. And I thought, well, this is great. We have like cheap sequencing. We've got like motivated microbial uh, uh, genomics people. <laughs> yeah, they're super passionate, right, yeah. about yeah. Their, their genomes. Mm -hmm. And so I pitched this at the time saying this is something we should do. It'll democratize genomics out into the community. And we don't need big centralized centers sequencing you know, 10,000 genomes themselves. Right. We just get 10,000 interested people and you crowdsource it. Yeah. And they go find environments that you might not have thought to even sample. Yeah. 
Um, and so now Nanopore finally has this Flongle yep. device, which is like an $80 disposable sequencing cartridge. Um, so it's affordable enough now that you can imagine citizen scientists doing Absolutely. it. Absolutely. I would be the first to sign and up so, with my kids. And uh, so this spring, in collaboration with Winston Timp at Hopkins, we're going to try to trial this in his undergrad classroom. Oh, my God. Where we're going to ask them on their spring break to go sample random stuff. Yes. They're going to plate it out. It's still hard to do metagenome assembly. Yeah, they're going to culture it. So we're going to yeah. plate it out and culture it, mm -hmm. and they're going to pick a colony that they like off their culture plates. We're going to put it on the flongles, sequence it, and then my group's going to develop a cloud platform that slurps up those reads and does the informatics. Mm -hmm. Basically, it'll run canoe or some assembler to build mm -hmm. the genome. It'll run MASH to tell them if it's a known or novel species. Mm -hmm. And uh, if we get enough work done, we'll say, here's all the novel genes that you found in here. And That's so it'll crazy. give you kind of this fun feedback where you found a new species or you found 10 new genes. Mm -hmm. And uh, then we're gonna try to broker the submission of all of that data to NCBI. Yeah. So that now we can try to finally kind of democratize this process of sequence collection mm -hmm. and we'll have people out in the world sequencing whatever they want to sequence and uploading it to these public open access archives. Mm -hmm. And uh, that will enable us to kind of surveil our DNA environment in the future. And maybe that. we'll see emerging antibiotic resistance or emerging yeah, pathogens over that's time. Crazy to we'll be able, able to go back and look that. at that, that wealth of knowledge. Uh, and all of these genomes will be tagged with like location and time of isolation and so on. So that's my fun vision project I that I hope to make awesome. some work on in the that future. That would be so much fun to be able to see and to contribute to. <laughs> if, I don't, if I don't do it, I think somebody will do it. I think it's inevitable that yeah. even a company like Nanopore themselves, I think, have a big motivation to enable that kind of work. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that'll be on a commercial, probably private platform. Right. You they'll find a way to public. monetize it. Like, I want to do it yeah. from a public health open access perspective. Have you seen um, Mike's, Mike Schatz's, um, I, his, what do you call it, iGenomics uh, app? Oh, yeah. That was just on Twitter, like, yesterday. Yeah. Right? He had a, a high school student write an yes. uh, iPhone pocket app for yes. analyzing genomic sequence. Correct. Yeah, and you can do, you can see your alignments right now. It's on viruses. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I think all that. of this you is just You could integrate into that inevitable. so people could look at their genomes like that or something. Yeah, yep. I think that for sure is where we're headed. That's awesome. Mobile, mobile portable uh, network yeah. sensor sequencing. Absolutely. I love thinking about the future <laughs> like that. <laughs> when you think of it in fun ways, it's great. Yeah, there's also a lot of scary ways to think about no, it. No, we don't do that. We'll though. think we'll about the fun ways. <laughs> Okay, and the last thing I ask is, do you have any advice for people who are early in their careers or even pre-career, like high school or college, uh, that are uh, interested in genomics? Yeah, I have two key pieces of advice. The first one, maybe I saw on Twitter, I forget where I saw it recently, but it was that you should follow your curiosity mm -hmm. and you'll kind of never be disappointed Absolutely. if you follow the things that you're curious in, because then you're guaranteeing that the things that you're working on, you're kind of self-motivated to find the answer. Yes. And that'll make like you it. more productive yes. and more happy yes. in your career. So I've always said, oh, that's interesting. Like, I want to go learn more about mm -hmm. genomics. Right. Uh, and so that's never failed me. Um, and then the other thing, which I always tell my departing summer students or postdocs or grad students, is that I always, when I was deciding where I wanted to go work, the first question I would always ask is, like, do I want to work with these people? Yeah. And I always made sure that I picked an institute or a home where everybody was nice and supportive and fun to be around and to learn from. Mm -hmm. And I've been lucky either by chance or by following that, that <laughs> principle to not ever be in kind of like a toxic environment. That's but awesome. Everyone I've ever worked with has just been a pleasure to show up and talk to every day. And that's made my career really, really gratifying. So that's so important. Prioritize the people yes. uh, and follow your curiosity, and hopefully, you'll be uh, lucky. <laughs> There's still a lot of luck involved and a lot of chance. A lot of hard work, too. And a lot of hard work. Awesome. Thank you so much, Adam. And I really appreciate you speaking You're with very us. You're welcome, Kelly. It's been fun. Hopefully, and you learned something new even after. I did. I learned several new things. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's it. Cool. Bye bye. Bye.